0: That night, the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet, the tower and the fire still stand, soaring to the sky. And I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican.
1: Greetings. Welcome to the Miserable Offenders Podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro, and I am joined today by Father Isaac Rayberg. Good morning. Uh, Father Rayberg and I are going to be picking up where I left off my conversation with uh, Andrew Brazier on the Spirit of Anglicanism by Paul Elmer Moore, and uh, so the listener is not worried that uh, Father Isaac is uh, has been left out. We have actually just reviewed that first section, and um, I think. Uh, I was excited to hit the record button because you and I were already s- starting to um, uh, get some great ideas uh, spilling forth, so I didn't want to lose any of that. There certainly is quite a bit here. A lot, Lots of fuel for discussion. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Well, um, on that note, I'll take a sip of coffee, and then uh, I will start in on this uh, first paragraph from section Roman numeral two if you're following along and uh, we'll see if that um, jogs anything loose worth discussing here if challenged to state the motive that started the Church of England on her peculiar course the historian is likely to reply that it was political rather than religious The first impulse towards independence was given by the papal refusal to admit the annulment of Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, and this conflict, however much it may have concerned the monarch's taste in wives, was presented to people as though the monarchy and national autonomy were at stake. Harry was a Catholic still. He applied the, quote, "'Whip with the Six Strings,' the six articles with an inquisitorial zest that must have been infinitely distressing to the cautious Cranmer. And then no sooner was the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome discredited than there arose a new party influenced from Geneva, which denied the authority of all bishops whatsoever. And again, the issue as presented to the people became confused with politics It was henceforth the cry of the court and the church that episcopacy and monarchy were indissolubly bound together. No bishop, no king. Between these opposite intrusions from the continent, the Church of England was thus directed, primarily by reason of state, to the via media, which has been her watchword from that day to this and the secular aspect of the cause persisted, in what in somewhat changed form, until the revolution. We see it in Sanderson's theory of ecclesiastical law, quote, In this, as in many other debates, the mean between the two extremes seems to be the truer opinion, and safer to follow. That is, the mi- middle way between Romanists who would exempt the clergy from all jurisdiction of the civil magistrates and the puritanical reformers who take away all power, authority, and ecclesiastical jurisdiction from the crown and confine it wholly to their own classes and conventions.
0: I uh, noticed the... Uh, adjective: They are puritanical for puritanical reformers, and I think that's that's important. Uh, I, I've been reading the uh, Davenant Trust uh, translation of Richard Hooker. <laughs> it's, nice. It's not not even so much a um, <laughs> a modernization as it's a straight up translation because Hooker's Hooker's original language is so uh, different from ours. Right. But, um, How is that, by the way? It? Oh, it's it's excellent. Um, I I the the uh they have two volumes out right now the uh preface and then the first book and i'm about oh halfway through the first book and i finished the preface about a week ago i Great. highly highly recommend that to uh to uh any good anglican really ought to check those out hmm. uh but but it really his his opponents there are um really the, the puritans not you know H- hooker is very solidly reformed he's very solidly a protestant but his issue is the Puritans who want to um, go beyond the Reformation um, uh, to, to revolution, really. Right. Um, and
1: and that's kind of, you know, I, I might, uh, I think I, I can agree with most of what Moore has to say here, um, except maybe that uh, he, he seems to um, early on kind of Lump all the Genevan influence into one anti-episcopal movement, politically speaking, and it seems to me that there are plenty of uh, people within the Church of England who were happy to be reformed, even in a in a Calvinist way, and happy to have bishops too. In fact, I I remember reading somewhere uh, a letter from John Calvin saying, you know, would that we could have Godly bishops and you know and I believe it was a, le- a letter to Thomas Cranmer you know wishing that uh, that they could have the, a reformed episcopacy where he was at. So you know I, I think that um, it, it's it is good to sort of zero in on on the Puritans as you know being in, in many ways um, sort of hy- you know the hyper Calvinism of, of their age I guess wanting yeah. to out out Calvin the Calvinists I suppose
0: and and certainly the the idea that that um, at least by the Elizabethan era they were they were trying to start a middle way between Rome and the reformers is just not an accurate picture I mean Rome was off the radar by then <laughs> right I mean that's, that's very much a, a post uh, Oxford look at the history rather than uh, than being faithful to what was going on in the, in the uh, uh, 16th and 17th centuries
1: yeah that's that is that's a good point point. and I, I think it's kind of interesting that you know Moore's own little twist on the via media here is that it's more um, more of a <laughs> political than theological uh, consideration at this point which may um I mean, that's something I'll have to actually think about, and actually, I I may need to um, look up his his quotation here from Sanderson's theory of ecclesiastical laws, um, because there I guess in a way there may be a sense in which the via media has been a talking point in Anglicanism through the centuries, but not necessarily in the way that uh, a Newman would have wanted it to be or made it out
0: to be. So right. right, Something
1: something interesting to ponder, I suppose, at this point.
0: And I also find it very interesting in in, in just as an American, that connection between the episcopacy and the monarchy and and, and I I can see why they would see that, mm-hmm. but but it's something that's so far removed from you know our own experience on this side of the pond that um, that, it, that it does strike as a little odd uh, that that they would yeah. be so tied together.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, the the monarch of the country was God's anointed. I mean, there's it is a the the ceremony itself is a deeply Christian. Um, Full of symbolism and and the bishops involved, and there's uh, um, you know there's oil, <laughs> you know there's <laughs> it, it's it's a it's a fascinating um, sort of uh, and, and there's a whole you know sort of political theopolitical uh, um, discourse to be had just on um, the, the nature of the monarchy, but you're right, I mean it, it kind of must must make the American revolution and the legitimacy of of anglicanism in the colonies after the revolution it must have seemed like a very odd thing maybe on both sides of the pond um and uh so and and it it, it does it it, but to us you know
0: this is in a way all we've ever known so um i have a young daughter so we are forced to watch uh, disney's frozen way too often and <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that
1: one a few times too.
0: Oh, I bet, I bet. <laughs> and the scene where where um, she's getting crowned, it's the Archbishop doing the crowning, right? And you know, very much a a Western, you know, mitre, crozier, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I thought what I thought was very interesting. I remember the second time I ever saw it, I was specifically looking for this: the orb and the scepter, which are. In, in Europe, very much Christian symbols. You know, the cross on the orb and all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. Did they keep that in the movie? And they did not. Uh, <laughs> they were uh, kind of more generic symbols, even though the bishop there clearly is a Christian bishop. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I suppose Disney will go
1: so far, but only so far. Um, only so far. <laughs> yeah. But no, I think, that I thought that was interesting too, that they had a, a Christian ordination so yeah um, but that yeah that's a great point I think um, we as Americans just we have to view the legitimacy of a bishop's pastoral role um, in a different way in a way that's not necessarily correct, connected to a, uh, a magistrate who happens to be a monarch <laughs> so so it is it is sort of unique to the, the the time, but maybe even more so the place. Um, well, on that, that note. Move on?
0: Yeah, absolutely. All yours. Okay, it is, second paragraph. It is in the light of this thrust of civil influences from abroad that we should interpret the special form which the Aristinianism of the age took in England and should consider the disabilities imposed upon Romanist and nonconformist alike, which were not removed until well into the 19th century. How far Aristinianism is right or wrong in principle, what should be the exact relation between church and state, is a question still sub-judice. It flared up after the Vatican Council between Gladstone and Newman, it flared up again recently in presidential elections in the United States, and is ablaze now on the continent of Europe. The issue is not dead. Manifestly, it is not the business of the present writer to express an opinion on the peculiar form of the problem as it confronts Great Britain today. But those who may care to know the natural bents of the English mind will find matter for reflection in the arguments and distinctions of the old controversialists arranged under section uh, Roman numeral 17. Well, that certainly uh, gets
1: right into the um, conversation we were just having.
0: (laughs) It (laughs) does indeed.
1: And they're talking about The, uh, Swiss theologian Erastus, who kind of, uh, paved the way for a particular relationship between the crown and the church that has been called typical or, uh, say definitive of the particular relationship that the Church of England has, um... So, yeah, I mean, interesting stuff that he kind of traces this as, hey, this has been a live live subject all the way through Newman until uh, present day. Um, but also that the particular conversation that is relevant to this book is more theological. But, uh, yeah, it is uh, certainly... I, I think if we can comment on the current state of the Church of England... There is certainly a group of people who I've heard saying the Church of England would be a lot more orthodox and a lot better off if it didn't have the state dragging it down. And I think that's an interesting take. I don't know how, to, how one could possibly know one way or the other. Um, it may well be the case that the state has been an anchor and it would have... Uh, uh, liberalized or sort of uh, lost its moorings a lot earlier. It's it's really, I'm I'm too far from from the thing itself to to have much
0: useful to say on that. And I, I do think there's there is an ideal relationship which has broken down in that the the church, as much as it is so tied to the state in a national church like that, the church still is supposed to be just from a biblical mandate. A prophetic voice to the nation, mm-hmm. and, and what we're seeing recently shows that um, that prophetic voice has very much um, either silenced itself or or been silenced <laughs> within the Church yeah. of England, and and I and I do not think that if it has been silenced, that's coming from the state. I mean, that's coming from within. Um, right. That, that is a corruption from within, not from without. Well, I mean, there's 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 so many
1: so many moving parts in a, in a big organization like the Church of England, or or like the government of England, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you can imagine a time when to be in Parliament meant to be a member of the Church of England, right? I mean, that that those days are long gone, but but it would certainly have meant that the the state of the national church would have been at least on paper uh, a concern of every member who is of government and uh, that that makes a big difference if nowadays if you belong to a church that maybe despises the church of england or or maybe you're you're muslim or jewish or Bo- buddhist and have no interest in christian concern um, some, you know, the the intimate relationship between Parliament and, uh, the College of Bishops is, uh, such that, you know, you can certainly get some toxic, uh, relationships going both ways, I suppose, but no, I think you're right, to a large extent, um, the Church of England has lost its moorings all by itself. (laughs) <laughs> you know, there there are people working within who um, have meant to secularize the church in this way or that. They might not call it that, but they've certainly wanted to change traditional teaching to match the current flavor and temperament
0: of, of the age. Well, we do um, see that. So that's a temptation that the church falls into... You know, from the very beginning. I mean, we go back to the uh, heresy of the Marcion, and you know what? You know, his his rejection of the Old Testament was very much to fit in with, you know, the the, the spirit of the age. And hmm. um, I mean, that's so, so much heresy. That's what happened with that. I mean, it's, right. it seems that uh, while we you know we might have an Arianism that is very theological, it seems a lot more of it often is social. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I could. I might be overstating that case a little bit,
1: but it, it does seem like the perennial temptation, though. Um, how can we take this received doctrine and make it just a little more acceptable? You know, yeah. And and acceptable to what? Well, that depends on the time and the place, I think. But um, right. and obviously this isn't just an, an Anglican problem either. I mean, all of the. All of the churches across the globe are um, sort of wounded in this way. And um, we've seen recent things coming out from the Church of Rome that are, um, frankly, they're having struggles with uh, heterodox teachings and teachers on human sexuality just
0: the way the Church of England is. And there was and just recently a major controversy in uh, American Eastern Orthodoxy as well over that very issue. So, yeah, even even the uh,
1: the, the the really
0: really old churches don't don't aren't immune to this.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's uh, there's been sort of a a rumor and a fixation within certain high church Anglican circles that, well, if this doesn't work out, I've got my I've already bought my ticket to Rome or to the east and and I I just think that maybe maybe those would have been safe places a couple decades ago, but I don't think that's the case anymore. I think you're as safe as the community and the province that you choose to be a part of. And yep. and even one that's perfectly good on paper because of the nature of sin, you're gonna have ministers and and lay people who lose their way and try to take God's word and make it say something quote more acceptable <laughs> to uh, <laughs> current fashions and into their own preferences. So I just you know I don't think there's a safe place, you know, any any place that's um got human beings involved is is going to have that temptation to to revise um, In that way so yeah it is is like the question of the age and and it does seem related to especially in the Church of England to the relationship between church and state but um, it is not the only question we hope to uh, to cover (laughs) today so so I suppose we should move on to this uh, last paragraph of section two here sounds good Right. That, however, is by the way, for our purpose, the point of interest in is the manner in which the church gradually disentangled her theology from these secular disputes as she became more aware of her separate mission and function. And it is characteristic of this evolution that at the beginning so much heat was expended upon what might be called the furniture of religion to turn from the contemporary debates of the continent over the metaphysics of faith to the bickerings in england over the adjuncts of worship is to enter a different world to the uninstructed reader a world wherein the more spiritual aspects of the conflict are lost in matters at once petty and materialistic but That is the Englishman's way to talk about what lies on the surface and to avoid as long as possible the deeper concerns of the heart. At any rate, not only were the vexed problems of faith involved in the wrangling over surpluses and posture, communion table and altar, but we can see them in the literature from Hooker onwards slowly coming out into the open. Well, that was a potent <laughs> paragraph, wasn't it?
0: It was indeed. And, and I mean, yeah, obviously the, uh, the uh, discussion over, or the, the controversies over vestments and, um, you know, is it a table or an altar? Uh, you know, you know or how are we supposed to kneel? And you know, are there's any there reflections and all that sort of thing? And, and it seems a lot of that is not really an issue for most Anglicans anymore. Uh, but But mm-hmm. you do see it pop up from time to time still, doesn't it? Right, I think, um, especially
1: in our time of uh, you know the same the kind of secularizing influences that we've had um, that we were just talking about, people of all stripes will find themselves kind of looking back and saying, "Well, well, where did we go wrong?" And we have to find a a sort of perfect model of Anglicanism and. And uh, cling to that so that we don't so we don't make these mistakes again. And and very often that means um, returning to old, somewhat settled debates. Um, and and there may be some merit to some of this, but I do think that in many ways it does kind of uh, uh, make for um, conflicts that some that many. Christians could just do without and in some ways uh, and not to say that they're altogether unimportant but uh, I do think that sometimes we end up arguing about the furnitures as Moore would put it rather than the spiritual realities
0: and and one of the things that is true and he he hints at this here is that in the minds of those involved in those conflicts and those controversies there's more than just the outside, you know, related to this, you know, to to those right. that were so against the Eucharistic vestments, there was theological implications to the using of those vestments that they that they were objecting to,
1: right? And and it was all very um, fresh in their minds. I mean, right. I think that if people today could walk into Tridentine Roman Catholic services. They would be blown away, and you can maybe get a, a hint of this if you can find a, a parish that has a Latin service locally. But even then, I'm sure they're they're not quite capturing um, the the difference, the the otherness of what that worship looked like. And when you get some of these um, more evangelical-minded Church of England. Loyal members of the Church of England um, wanting to make this, uh, you know, sort of cut away objects that might be subject to idolatry. Um, I mean, it, I think it stands to, it's important to state first off that English ceremonial was always perhaps more austere than some of the more Baroque things going on in the south of Europe. So there's, there's sort of a, a difference of, uh, of just place and culture. But also, you know, some of, some of these people must have just associated this, um, some of these objects or, or vestments with uh, a whole uh, constellation of concerns when it comes to idolatry or, or um, frankly, what they viewed to be sub-Christian worship.
0: And I think that's another one of those areas where, as American Anglicans, things are, are a little bit different. Um, you know, we, We've always tended to be a little bit more high in our churchmanship than, um, you know, you're, you're more evangelicals in, in the Church of England. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I remember hearing uh, an interview with a prominent uh church of england evangelical uh, presbyter recently and he was uh, joking around with the uh, the interviewee or the interviewer and the interviewer is from um a you know, very proud to be reformed uh in, in cana east parish okay <laughs> and, and, yeah. the, and, the, and the the church of england uh presbyter says well you know what's what's with all those candles don't your lights work you know, <laughs> and, and, and they were like, "Oh, we, we, I thought we toned things down for your visit." <laughs> you right, know? right. And, and so that's, it's, it's. it's and, you know, they, they had, they had fun with it. They, they so it wasn't certainly wasn't a, a contentious thing. But uh, yeah, we, I think we do here in America just tend to assume that you know we, we're supposed to have candles, investments, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, a Even higher the, ceremonial. Yeah,
1: yeah. And and for us, it, that's more of a denominational distinctive maybe you know in, right. in America denominationalism is is much more you know the, we the episcopal church was may have had a prominence in certain parts of the colonies early on but and and yes that we have the national cathedral but i mean it's and and i say we i mean historically um, you know neither of us are members of the episcopal church but but Anglicanism in America has only ever been an option. One of many, not the right. established church. And I guess there's there, that, that may have been a, a concern of the founding fathers, of, or so they say, um, <laughs> not to have a, an established uh, religion established by law. But um, so that's a difference. That's a basic difference for us. Not only do we does the role of the bishop not mean, as in England, that oh you you also get to be part of Parliament. You know, you're a bishop, great. You know you're in the club. Um, so not only does is our notion of the um, church and the state sort of un, unhinged from each other, but also a lot of these ceremonial concerns have sort of um, left the uh, I guess, the context of the theological concerns that, that corresponded with them. Um, and in a way, these are still live questions for people in England. Although I think that even there, um, it's not as much as it used to be. But
0: Yeah, have you ever been to a, a service where they do a north-facing uh, celebration of the Eucharist? I have not, you know. I, I know a, a handful of um,
1: of folks just through internet conversation who said they they celebrate that way. But um, hey, have you ever experienced that one?
0: Uh, only once. I, I was visiting a parish out of town, and uh, it was a, a an REC or Episcopal Church parish, hmm. and um, they, they they did, but it was it was kind of in the the later um, lobbying way of doing it where the the uh, the table or altar is kinda of fixed in place. They didn't they didn't move it like they would have in in the Yeah. But uh, yes. it, was, it was it was interesting. It was you know just as a you know, as a clergyman I, I I thought it was fascinating to see the way they, they managed to you know do the stage direction as it were.
1: Well Yeah, that is really interesting. And I think, you know, more kind of gets to another important point that, you know, maybe some some of our listeners may be um, not Anglican. They may be coming from evangelical or even uh, Roman Catholic um, churches. And and that's, I, I find that usually those are the two directions from which I hear people saying, like, why is this even a question? Right. I mean, mean, evangelicals like, boy, you guys sure are being fussy about your liturgy, you know, your fancy pants liturgy or whatever, you know. And um, whereas the Roman Catholics are like, wait, this was debated at one point? You know, almost (laughs) as though to even have the debate would would make you cease to be a church, you know. And so it, it is interesting. I mean, I think these are important questions and Anglicanism is better off for having gone through them. One of the things
0: that I've often said about the prayer book itself is that I really appreciate the way um, that uh, like Shakespeare, it's very specific on the uh, script, but is relatively light on the stage direction. And it's not that Mm. it's not there at all. But there is a lot open to interpretation. And I I think that's a strength of the prayer book.
1: It's a great comparison. Yeah, very well put. I agree. And and there is plenty of tradition to back up um, a variety of expressions. But uh, our concern um, at Miserable Offenders and at the North American Anglican has been a loyalty to the script, so to speak, absolutely, as well as as a, a loyalty to the you could say um, the constitution or the thirty nine articles. You know that, that the theology not be so unhinged from from that document that just anything goes during the liturgy, <laughs> right? Or right. the pastoral
0: life, you know, not just the liturgy, right? And then there are. Um, Within the articles, uh, there is a considerable amount of freedom. I mean, they they are very wide boundaries um, Mm -hmm. that, that for the most part, just exclude the extremes. Uh, But sometimes, you know, at least in my experience, people are are, have troubles with even that kind of boundaries.
1: (laughs) Right i think two things are going on there are certain people who just by their temperament are never going to like any kind of vagity whatsoever um any and then there's the other sort that um any kind of yeah any kind of boundary is considered uh um cramping their style or you know very often really what it is is a uh a hidden rebelliousness that really this person's heart is probably in a different tradition. and They're just trying to shoehorn everything they can into a, a prayer book or even a non-prayer book uh, sort of system of, of uh, worship. So um, I think those are pastoral concerns and we need uh, courageous and loving bishops to um Kind of rein these guys in very often, um, and not that I, I think I want an overbearing ecclesiastical church, but um, to some extent, it's not. I mean, I, I mean, you're a priest, and I, I'm guessing you would agree with this. It, to some extent, sometimes the the congregation needs to be saved from <laughs> from their priest. You know, Absolutely. this is this is the uh, this worship, this church, these beliefs belong to all the people. And when someone wants to sort of uh, take this in a in a in their own peculiar direction, um, there need to be safeguards to say, well, you know what, that's not really your position to do, buddy. So
0: in my short time as as vicar of our parish, uh, one of the things that I have emphasized is that there, there will be you know fidelity to the prayer book and to and to the articles. And and I, and I told them that exact thing. You know, the, the reason why this is such a big deal for me is that I'm trying to protect you guys from me, <laughs> hmm. and from That's and from cool. whatever whims I want to do. And, and I am, you know, to to my parishioner's credit, there's been a couple of times when they have um, uh, brought up some, some some questions about 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 some of that. You know, for for example, in the and uh, we use the 1928 prayer book, which doesn't have the. Uh, the Benedictus Quiveni after the Sanctus. Hmm. And, uh, but, uh, but we, you know, that is one thing that we, you know, we, we, we sing all of the, the, uh, um, the service music, and that is in all of the settings they're together, just about. I think there's two right. really basic settings in the hymnal that don't have it. And, and that was, and that was my response when they asked, okay, well, you know, if, if we're trying to be faithful to the prayer book, why, why is this there? Well, because. It's in, you know, being in the hymnal gives it a sense of, of, of authorization. Uh, you know, would I mind dropping it? No, but I don't. I wouldn't do that to our choir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go.
1: Um, no, I think that's a great example of, um, of what this looks like practically on the ground. I mean, it, it is an ongoing conversation at the local level, um, not just, you know, up in the air in, in the, the realm of ideas, but these are... This is the lived life of the church, and um, and you know how you approach the the liturgy and the worship and the theology of, of the church matters. Yeah. So I mean that's that's very cool. Well, I think we have covered Roman numeral section two of the spirit of Anglicanism, and I look forward to moving on to uh, Section 3, when we return. Um, but it's been great to talk to you, Father. I, uh, I think that's all. I will uh, look forward to joining you again. Until next time. Until next time. Bye.
0: If you the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building, I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while a little longer. Build it again today to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at n-o-r-t-h-a-m-anglican.com